Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we are pulling a show from our archives. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast on April 24th, back in 2017. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. like where you are today, but if you were in St. Louis, man, you would just, uh, you'd be beside yourself. It is so gorgeous outside. I mean to tell you, the sun is shining, not a cloud in the sky. It's like 70 degrees. It's crystal clear air. Oh, it's beautiful. All the flowers are in bloom and the lawns are as green as you'll see them all year. And the trees are all full foliage now. It's, it's really gorgeous. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro, And along with Chester, I welcome you to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio shows we actually remember from when we were kids. Now, some of them, admittedly, we remember from television. We may not remember them from their original broadcasts on radio, but some of us do. Some of us do remember the radio shows. I remember some of the early episodes of Gunsmoke. And I also remember listening to Life of Riley on the radio from time to time. And a couple of others, Fibber McGee and Molly on the old Monitor show, I remember that. Anyway, even if you're not a baby boomer, you're welcome to come along because these shows that we have tonight are really, really outstanding. And they're in crystal clear sound. What's on tap? Well, we have an episode of Dragnet that involves a murder that uh, Joe Friday and Frank Smith have to solve. And then we're going to move on to a great episode of the Jack Benny Show. It's another one that featured Ronald Coleman and and Benita Hume as uh, guest stars. And it's a funny one. It really is a funny one. They end up at Ciro's Restaurant on the Sunset Strip. And, well, enough said. Very funny. And then we're going to follow things up with two of the most unforgettable characters you will ever meet on an episode of Gunsmoke. So that's our lineup, and we're happy to have you along. So why don't you make yourself comfortable, get uh, that easy chair drawn up over there, maybe get yourself something to drink, maybe a little snack from the kitchen, and settle in, because we're going to get started in just a moment.
this time we're going to start things off with an episode of Dragnet that was originally broadcast back on September the 21st in 1952. The name of this episode is The Big Shot. Of course, it features uh, Jack Webb as Joe Friday, and Frank Smith is played by Ben Alexander. Some interesting characters are introduced in this one. There is a club owner by the name of John Watson. The scene that depicts him is kind of memorable. We'll talk about it just a little bit afterwards. Then also there's a kitchen helper by the name of Mr. Seaton. And as you listen to him, I think one of the things that jumped out at me was how concerned they were about the crime that was committed. You'll see what I'm talking about. Also, there's a very interesting lady named Elvia Collins, played by Virginia Gregg, who is somewhat of a memorable character. Okay, here we go. Back to September the 21st, 1952. This is Dragnet and the Big Shot. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A nightclub manager has been robbed and killed. The killers made good their escape. Their identity is unknown. Your job, get them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, April 7th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out a homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from R&I, and it was 1.46 p.m. when I got to the interrogation room. Find anything? No, they're checking it now. Mm-hmm. Mr. Seaton? Uh, yes, Sergeant. I wonder if you'd mind going over all that happened just once more. You might have forgotten something, some little thing that might help us here. All right. Uh, where do you want me to start, where I came in this morning? Yeah, that'll be fine. Well, I came into work about 8.30. Is that the time you usually get there? Uh, yes, sir. It depends what time I catch my bus. Uh, usually it's about then, though. Mm-hmm. Was Mr. Kelby there then? Yeah, he usually gets in around 8 or so, comes in, looks the place over. You know, checks the register, liquor supply in the bar, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to his office to count the money for the night before, get the deposit slip ready for the bank. Uh, that's what he was doing this morning when they came in. You see him come in? Yeah, I was in the kitchen when those two men came in. Mm-hmm. First, I thought they were salesmen. Both of them were dressed kind of nice. A lot of salesmen come in to see Kelby that time in the morning. I didn't figure anything was wrong. They say anything to you, these men? Well, no, not at first. They just stood there looking the place over. I went on peeling my potatoes. Then I heard one of them say that he guessed they might as well get it over with, and that's when they pulled the guns and told me it was a stick-up. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, first, I didn't know quite what to do. I asked them if they was kidding not to pull jokes like that, and I told them if it was a joke, it wasn't very funny. Mm-hmm. And then the big one come over and told me to keep my mouth shut, told me it wasn't any joke, and, and if I made a sound, they'd just soon blow my head off his look at me. Well, you just know I wasn't about to cause any trouble. Did Mr. Kelby know they were in the place? No, not then. You see, he keeps the door to his office closed when he's counting the money, and I thought about yelling to him, but then when I looked at those two guys, I thought about what they'd said about killing me. I decided not to. What did these men do then? 
Well, the tall one walked over to the door of Mr. Kelby's office and knocked on the door, and Mr. Kelby said for him to come in. Mm-hmm. And they opened the door and walked in. He saw the guns, asked him what they wanted. Uh, told him they'd better get out of there with those guns, not to cause any trouble. The little one laughed at him and said they wanted the money and that Kelby was the one who shouldn't cause any trouble. I see. Go ahead, Well, the uh, little one started to pick up the money and stuff it in his pockets, and Mr. Kelby told him they better leave it alone, that he had friends who'd take care of him. And the two of them said something I couldn't hear. Little one told Kelby that his friends wouldn't do him any good. That's when they shot him. Which one actually shot him? Oh, the little one. He's the one who said that thing about the friends. Well, did you try to do anything to help Kelby while all this was going on? Well, what could I do? I told you what those guys said. Kelby wanted to be a hero, save the money, fine. I wasn't his money, belonged the owners. Look, I tell you, Sergeant, money isn't worth that much. They nail you into that box and they don't throw a bank book in. Those guys told me to stay put, I stayed put. What did these two fellows do after they shot Kelby? Well, the big one was real surprised, like he didn't know the little one was going to do it. Yelled at him he was a fool, said he was a stupid fool. Those were his exact words. And the little guy finished getting all the money, and then they ran out. Well, I'll tell you, I was scared to death they were going to kill me, too. It looked like it for a minute, too. How do you mean? Well, when they ran through the kitchen of the back door, the little one stopped and asked what they was going to do about me. I thought, sure, my number was up. The uh, big one said not to make it any worse to leave me alone, then they ran out of the place. And boy, that's when I called the cops and those other guys, you know, out there in the car, and then you came, and the rest you know. Are you sure that you've never seen any one of these men before? No, sir, I'm pretty sure I haven't. I wonder if you can give us some kind of a description on these two men. Yeah, the big one was about six feet two, maybe three. Weighed about 180 to uh, 200. Dark, uh, black curly hair. Mm-hmm. Anything special about him, the way he talked, any scars, anything like that? No, nothing. How was he dressed? Can you remember? Yeah, he had on a gray suit. Uh, Glenn Clad uh, had kind of red in it, you know? The suit looked expensive. He had black shoes, a maroon tie. Now, how about the smaller one? What did he look like? Oh, he was a little one, uh, five, six, or seven, uh, 130, 35 pounds. He was dark, too, black hair, cut real short. Uh-huh. How about his clothes? Oh, uh, had on a blue suit. Uh, looked like a gabardine. Uh, single-breasted, light blue. Had on a yellow shirt and dark blue tie. Would you know if there were any marks or scars on him? Oh, yeah. He, uh, he had a little tiny scar right here on the edge of his mouth. Uh-huh. Made him look like he was smiling all the time. Well, these are very good descriptions, Mr. Seaton. They're going to help us a lot here. Yeah, well, like I said, I wasn't about to be a hero and try to stop these two, but I knew that you'd want to know what they looked like, so I tried to get all the dope I could. We understand. Now, during the holdup, did either of these men use any names? One of them call the other by a name, anything like that? Oh, let me think about that. Yeah, yeah, there was something. Uh, while they were in the office, while the little guy was picking up the money, the big one said, hurry up, Deuce. Yeah, he called him Deuce. That was a smaller one? Uh-huh, that's right, Deuce. Joe? Yeah? I'll ask the stats office to make a run on the descriptions and M.O. for us. Check the oddity and the moniker file in the R&I office and see if they can come up with a Deuce or anything on this car. I'll be fine, fine. Thanks a lot. Hey, uh, you got cigarettes, sir? Yeah, there you go. Thanks. Yeah, how about a match? Sure. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, it's a terrible thing, you know, Kelby being shot. I'll probably lose my job. How's that? I'll probably lose my job. The owners will figure, sure, I should have tried to stop those guys. Well, those are the breaks. You said that when these men came in, the door to the manager's office was closed. Is that right? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Kelby always kept it closed when he counted the money, just like I said. Uh Uh-huh. Well, then it looks like the men knew that Kelby would be checking the money at that time, doesn't it? That they Mm. knew the layout of the place when they came in. Yeah, you know, I never thought of that. 
By gosh, that's what must have happened. They sure seemed to know what was going on. Anybody else that was usually around at that time, would you know? Anybody that might have known that the manager worked the accounts at that particular time? No, there's nobody else around. But I, I don't think that Mr. Kelby kept it a secret about the money. Was Kelby conscious at all after he was shot? Do you remember mm, that? Not more than a minute. I ran over to him right after the man left. I wanted to see if I could help, you know. Okay. And he was shot pretty bad. They'd hit him in the stomach. He was all doubled up. Terrible. He looked up at me and said, I know. And his voice kind of trailed off. That's all. Just, I know. Staff's office is making the run, Joe. Got out the local and the APB on the suspects. Nothing that matches the name Deuce and nothing on the scar. Anything from the crime lab yet? No. Checked by the office. While I was there, Murphy called from Georgia Street. Anything? Yeah, not good. What? Kelby died and never regained consciousness. With the death of the victim, any information he might have given us about his killers was gone. The one witness to the murder was shown the mug books but was unable to identify the suspects. Sergeants Gill Encinas and Danny Galindo canvassed the neighborhood and came up with the driver of a bakery truck who thought he'd seen the killers leave the club. He told them that two men answering the description given us had walked out of the club and gotten into a late model Mercury sedan. He'd not been able to get the license number of the car, however. He was brought into the office and shown the mug books, but he was unable to point out the killers for us. In checking the neighborhood, Encinas and Galindo had come up with a waitress who had seen two men answering the description of the killers loitering around the area. She also described the Mercury sedan, but said that she hadn't paid much attention to it. Because of the smoothness with which the holdup men had operated, indications led us to believe that they had been tipped off by somebody working for the club. Proceeding with this theory, we checked with the club owner, a Mr. John Watson. We found him in the kitchen of his home. Hope you don't mind if I finish up here, officer. No, not at all, Mr. Watson. Guess it seems a little silly to you for a man to be in the kitchen. Kind of a hobby of mine, cooking. Yes, sir. Making a cheesecake. Got some friends coming over tonight. Figured a cheesecake might taste good later in the evening. Yes, sir. You go right ahead. We just have a few questions we'd like to ask you. About the robbery? Terrible thing. I don't understand why Kelby just didn't give him the money. Not give him any reason to shoot. Do you have any idea who might have known that the money would be in the office at the time? You know, almost everyone that worked in the place, not making mention of the salesman that came in. Right. Would you hand me that rolling pin over there? Yeah, here you are. Thanks. Trust to a cheesecake's important. That's one of the reasons I make it myself. Can't stand a soggy crust. <laughs> are there any of your employees that you think might do a thing like this? Well, that'd be hard to say. I didn't get around the club much. Once in a while, I'd drop by, chat with Kelby. He did the hiring and firing. As long as the place made money, I didn't interfere. Mm. Well, the way it looks, it could be very likely that one of the employees did it. The men who pulled the job seemed to know just what they were doing. That right? Yes, sir. I wonder if we could look through your employment records. Sure, of course. Anything I can do to help out in this thing. Uh, uh, would you hand me that pan over there? Where? Uh, this one? Yeah. Right. Thanks. Get this crust into it, and the cheesecake's about ready. Yeah, sure, you can look at the records. Don't see what that's going to show, but you're welcome to them. Uh, what kind of a car do you drive, Mr. Watson? Uh, new Lincoln. Just got it a couple of weeks ago. Any of your employees drive a late model Mercury that you might know of? No. Oh, like I said, I don't really have a lot to do with the actual operation of the club. Kelby took care of that. Good manager. Did a fine job. Can you tell us how much money they took, sir? No. Near as we can tell, it came to a little over $1,100. Some of that was in checks. You know, that we cashed for our customers. Well, that finishes that. <sighs> Get this together... Now, get it in the oven. Looks good, doesn't it? Yes, sir. <laughs> you should taste it. Set it for 350 for 25 minutes, and that does it. Yeah. Now then, can 
Can I get you officers anything? A cup of coffee, something like that? No, sir. If you just arrange for us to check your employment records. Certainly. I'll call the club right away. We'd appreciate that. My brother-in-law's down there looking after things now. He's an idiot. Never could get a job on his own. I only hired him because my wife insisted on it. Yeah, he'd probably botch up the whole thing. Usually does. Well, if you'd call him, sir. How's Kelby's condition? Going to be laid up long? Well, Mr. Kelby's dead, sir. We thought you knew. No, I hadn't heard. Oh, I can hardly believe it. Such a ruthless thing. Just terrible. Kelby was such a good man. Everybody that worked for him liked him. Didn't have an enemy in the world. He had two. We went back five years into the employment records of the club. There were over 200 names. Each of them had to be checked out. Frank and I spent two months running them down. In all instances, the people interviewed had alibis or else they could explain their action at the time of the robbery and killing. In each instance, if the person owned an automobile, it was checked. A broadcast and an APB had been gotten out on the late model Mercury scene at the club, but there had been no answers. No replies had come in on the descriptions of the two suspects. June 17th, we were checking out the last three names on the list. One of the three, a David Adams, listed a rooming house on West 34th Street as his home address. We checked with the landlady, a Mrs. Elvia Collins. Adams? Sure, he lives here, second floor front. I wonder if we could talk to him, ma'am. Sure, got no reason to say you can't. Come in. Thank you, ma'am. He isn't in right now. Went out about an hour ago. Said he had to lead on a job. I sure hope he gets it. He's a couple of months behind in his rent. That's right. Sit down. Just take any chair. Thank you, Miss Collins. You officers like anything? M mint on the table there. Help yourself. No, thank you. Adams give you any idea when he might be back? No, he didn't say right out. I expect he'll be here by six. How's that, man? That's when we serve dinner. Mr. Adams hasn't missed more than four meals since he's been living here. Mm. What's this Adams look like? Oh, little man. Sort of like my first husband, little dried-up man. Well, how old would you say he is? Well, I know exactly. Baked his birthday cake last Wednesday. Forty-six candles and one for luck. About how tall would you say, ma'am? Five, six or so. How about his weight? Mm, maybe 120, and that'd have to be soaking wet. His real little man. Is he dark or light? I beg pardon? His hair, is it dark or light? Oh, light. A real silky hair, what little there is left of it. Funny the way he combs it. Never could figure it out why a man would comb his hair that way. What's that, ma'am? Well, you see, he's only got a little bit of hair on one side. He lets it grow real long, and then he combs it all the way over the top of his head so it'll look like he's got a lot of hair. He really doesn't, though. It's silly. Well, he's pretty vain about other things, too. Does he have any friends in the building, Miss Collins? Well, there's his two cousins. They've moved, though. How long ago did they move? Well, let's see. Must have been about two, three months ago. Yes, that much, anyway. Well, what did these two cousins look like, Miss Collins? Can you describe them? Well, you just bet I can. I had a lot of trouble with them, too. Always drinking... Uh, first one, he was a big one. Six feet, anyway. Had dark hair. Weighed maybe 200 pounds. Miss Collins, how about his complexion? Dark. Anything outstanding about him? Well, now, what do you mean, outstanding? Well, I mean anything about him that struck you as being different, maybe? Anything that attracted your attention, something like that? No. Well, what about the number two man? How old was he? Well, he was a little younger. 35 or maybe 37, around there. Now, how tall would you say he was, Miss Collins? Well, he was a little man. Five foot, six or seven. How much do you figure he weighed, would you know? 130 pounds or so. How about his complexion? Dark, mm -hmm. just like the other one. Anything outstanding about him? Scars, tattoos, maybe anything like that? Yes, yes, he had a scar right on the corner of his mouth. Made him look like he was smirking all the time. It was a real dirty look. What are these men's names, Miss Collins? Well, now the big one is called Al Evans. Uh -huh. The little one's name was Bill Evans. They was brothers. 
Did they have a car? Oh, yes, yes, a late one. It was real pretty. You know what make it was? No. No, I'm sorry, but I can't tell one kind from another. Sure was a nice-looking one, though. A lot of chrome all over it. Mm. Do you have any idea where they might be now, where they moved to? Mm, no, I haven't. Well, Mr. Adams can probably tell you, though. I see. Oh, uh, that might be him now. I'll see. Oh, we'll go with you, ma'am, all right? Are you expecting any trouble? What's this all about, anyway? Mr. Adams done something wrong? Oh, I do hope not. He's a little man, but he's awfully nice. We'd just like to talk to him. Oh, I sure hope they won't be any trouble. Oh, Mr. Adams. Yes, Miss Collins? Uh, these gentlemen would like to talk to you. Oh, Something I can do for you? Are you uh, David Adams? Yes, sir, that's right. We're police officers, Mr. Adams. My name's Friday. This is my partner, Frank Smith. How do you do? Adams. What is it you wanted? Well, it might be better if we talked in your room. All right, but I still don't see what it is you want. Did you get the job? Uh, no, Mrs. Collins, but I've got another lead. Don't worry, I'll be able to take care of that matter by the first next week. Oh, it's all right, Mr. Adams. I understand. This is it. Not much. Just sit down anywhere. Thank you. You want to tell me what this is all about now? What it is that you want with me? Well, we'd like to talk to you about the robbery of the Pink Rat Cafe last April. Manager was killed. The Pink Rat, yes. I worked there a couple of years ago, but I don't think I've been in the place since then. I lost the job. Mm. Kelby fired me for dropping a load of dishes. Did you have an argument at the time? Well, a little one, yeah. I was sore. He was, too. Wanted me to pay for the dishes. I didn't feel it was my fault. I told him so. He had a few words. Nothing serious, so why? Mr. Kelby was killed in the hold-up of the bar. Yes, I know. That's too bad. But you surely don't think I had anything to do with that, do you? Well, that's what we're trying to find out. Well, why do you think I'd have anything to do with it? I haven't been near the place for a couple of years. Well, the way the thing was pulled, a whole M.O. makes it look like it's an inside job. Somebody had to give the layout, tell him that Kelby would be in his office with the money at that time. It all points to somebody that either works there now or who did work there. Yes, but why me? Well, your name was on the list. It had to be checked out. Adams, you got any relatives in town? Not now. I had a couple of cousins. They were out here for a while. What are their names? Alan, Bill, Evans. Mind if we look around your room? No, I got nothing to hide. Go ahead and look around. You won't find anything. Thanks. What is it about my cousins? You figure they had something to do with the thing? Well, we think they might have. Their descriptions match the ones we got from the witnesses. You've been talking to old Mrs. Collins. She's the one who told you about Alan, Bill, isn't she? Well, who told us isn't important, Adam. I mean, you don't have to admit it, I know. You're a busybody, always getting your nose into somebody else's business. Oh, Harpy. Joe. Yeah. Look at here. What's this gun for, Adams? You never know when somebody's going to try to break into the house. It's protection, that's all. Hmm. You never had it out of the house, huh? Not since I bought it. It's a 32, though. What are you so interested for? Kelby was killed with a 38. Well, he was, wasn't he? Seems to me I heard it on the radio or read it in one of the papers. No, you didn't. The caliber of the gun that killed him wasn't released. How'd you know? I must have read it in the paper, like I said. No, this won't work, mister. I think maybe we better talk to you downtown, huh? You gonna arrest me? Just like to talk to you downtown. Let's go. Well, sure, but I got nothing to hide. Well, you still gotta come up with an explanation for knowing about that gun. Description we got matches your cousins. You know about the gun. You got a lot to explain. I don't want to go to jail. Too bad, Adam. You should have thought about that before you got involved in this. Well, if I tell you, if I help you get the guys that did it, will you give me a break? Well, we can't make any deals. Well, I don't want to go to jail. You can't do anything for me, huh? All we can do is see that the district attorney's office knows that you've helped. But you'll tell him, huh? If I give you a hand? He'll know about it. Okay. I got claustrophobia putting me in a cell and drive me nuts. I'll tell you who did the job. More than that. Yeah. I can show you the gun they used. We took David Adams back to the office and checked the gun with pawn shop records. It was clean. 
We printed him and checked him through R&I. We took him over to Westlake Park and he showed us the approximate place in the lake where the gun had been thrown. He explained that his two cousins had talked him into helping them with the robbery of the club. He also said that as soon as he found out that there'd been a shooting, he'd washed his hands of the entire affair and told them that he'd have nothing more to do with it. The loot from the robbery had been divided between the two cousins, Adams taking no part of it. It took us two hours of searching before we were able to find the gun. It was turned over to Russ Camp in ballistics. He fired test shots from the gun, and comparison with the death bullet showed that it was the murder weapon. Markings on the shell casing found at the scene of the crime were the same as those left on the test casing. Adams told us that Bill Evans owned a late model Mercury sedan and that the two brothers had left for St. Louis in the car. He also was able to give us the license number. We checked with DMV and they told us that the legal owner was a finance company on Crenshaw. The manager there told us that their payments were up to date. They were able to give us a St. Louis address used as a reference by Bill Evans. We called the St. Louis Police Department, gave them a rundown and asked them to pick up the Evans brothers for us. The witness to the killing was unable to identify David Adams as one of the holdup men. He was taken to the main jail and booked on suspicion of 287 PC. Frank and I waited for word from the St. Louis Police Department. They're all the same, aren't they, Joe? What do you mean? I put any of them in a tight spot and they'll spill all they know to save their skins. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? Adams seems pretty sincere, though. Seems like he does really want to help. Well, we'll know more when we hear from St. Louis. You figure that Adams is telling the truth? I don't know. The story seems to check out about how he laid the thing out for him, uh. showing us where the gun was. Uh. Being that far back in his room, Rent, it'd make that part about him not taking any of the money fit. I'll get it. Homicide, Friday. Yeah, I'll take it. Mello. Yeah. Yeah, we've been waiting to hear from you. Did you pick up the Evans brothers? Uh-huh. Yeah, wait a minute. Toss me that pad, will you, Frank? Yeah, here. Thank you. Yeah, all right, go ahead. Uh-huh. What was that again? I didn't... Yeah, I got it. Okay, thanks. Anything we can do for you, give us a call. Yeah, sure, we sure appreciate it. Right, bye. What does it? What do you mean? St. Louis checked the address. They'd been there all right, but they left this morning. Any idea where they went? Yeah, the Evans boys told us. Huh? They left a forwarding address. Motel out on Ventura Boulevard. Frank and I notified Captain Lorman of the new developments. We talked to the manager of the motel, and she told us that she did have a reservation for June 24th under the name Evans. She told us that they'd be in Cottage 12. In view of the fact that the suspects had not been alarmed, we decided not to put out an APB on the car. We felt reasonably sure that having made the reservations, they'd keep them. But in the event the suspects arrived earlier than expected, a surveillance was placed on the motel 24 hours a day. Sergeants Howard Hudson and Bill Cummings took the period from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Frank and I covered the other 12 hours. Directly across from the motel was a used car lot. We talked to the manager and he gave us permission to sit in any one of his cars while keeping the place under surveillance. As we relieved each other, the police car was taken back to the city hall so there would be no indication that the place was staked out. Four days passed. No sign of the suspects. June 23rd, 4.32 a.m. Joe. Yeah, Mercury sedan. License checks. Two men. Stopping at the manager's cottage. They're ringing the bell. Uh, yeah. Looks like they're signing the register. It must be. There. She's giving him the key. All right, let's let him get to the cottage. We told her we would. All right. Yeah, there's the landlady's signal. Let's go. All right. Who is it? 
This is the manager. You're gonna have to move your car. Huh? You gotta move your car. Put it in the back. What do you want, Stan? Hey, Bill. Come, Bill! Hey, Joe, get the other one. Yeah. Get away from the cop. Leave me alone. All right, give it up, mister. I'm getting out. If you got any brains, you ain't gonna try to stop me. You're going no place, mister. You can't get over that wall. Throw that gun out here. You haven't got a chance. Not sure, You'll never take me. All right, hold it up, Evans. You see, I got no gun. Get a doctor for me, huh? Or hurt. Yeah, we'll call one. You didn't have to shoot, did you? Lousy deal, you didn't have to shoot. You didn't give me much choice, mister. I wasn't trying to hit you, just trying to scare you, that's all. I didn't want to hit you. I'm a good shot. I knew what I was doing. Yeah, you proved you're a good shot. What do you mean? When you killed Kelby. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 4th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. William M. Evans and Alfred T. Evans were tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. They received life sentences in the state penitentiary. Because David R. Adams had turned state's evidence, and since he was not actually involved in the crime, in the interest of justice, the charges against him were dismissed and he was released from custody. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Virginia Gregg, Jack Crucian. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. These great programs sound off for Chesterfield. Radio, Dragnet, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis Show, and every weekday, Arthur Godfrey time. On television, Dragnet, Gangbusters, Arthur Godfrey and his friends in the Perry Como Show. Tomorrow, you'll want to sound off for Chesterfields, because either way you like them, regular or king size, Chesterfield gives you the best possible smoke. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. This program is dedicated to the 59th Annual Conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police held in Los Angeles this week. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. That was Dragnet. That was originally broadcast on NBC back on September 21st in 1952. And the name of that episode was The Big Shot. Some very interesting characters in that one. Uh, First of all, I can't wait to the next time I go out to California because I want to eat at the Big Rat Cafe. No, the Pink Rat Cafe. The Pink (laughs) Rat. The Pink Rat Cafe. Boy, I'll tell you what, that one, that one a little just draw in the crowds, won't it? Uh, That was the story of Alan Bill Evans, the murderers, thieves at the Pink Rat Cafe and their cousin, who was not brought up on any charges, even though it was his idea to begin with. Now, I have a hard time with that. It was his idea. He 
got these guys involved, but because a murder took place, he said, whoops, I don't want anything to do with it, and I won't take any of the money, and therefore I'm exonerated? I don't know. And did you get Mr. Seaton? He was the kitchen helper. All he was concerned about was losing his job. I mean, he had some concern that this fellow was killed, but uh, he was a lot more concerned about losing his job, if you ask me. And the club owner, John Watson, was more concerned about getting his cheesecake properly cooked. Oh, my. Of course, in all fairness, he didn't realize that the guy had died. And then there was Elvia Collins, Virginia Gregg. I love her description of one of the Adams brothers. She says, oh, he's a little dried-up man like my ex-husband. <laughs> Virginia Gregg was always very good. One other question I had on that one, it said that this uh, gun was uh, pulled out of Westlake Park Lake and was fired a couple of times by the ballistics expert. That gun had to have been in that lake for well over two months. Would that gun still fire? Did you notice that when these guys returned to California from St. Louis, which, by the way, they would have had to go on Route 66 because there was no freeway system in 1952. It was just getting started. They had booked a reservation at a motel on Ventura Boulevard, which would have been up above L.A. in the valley, and they were assigned to cottage number 12. And it got re- reminding me of when I was a kid, when we would go on road trips and stay overnight in a motel, which we didn't do a lot. But when we did, there were no chain motels. There were just these little motels that had the little cottages. And so it, it made me curious, and I looked up a little information. It says in 1947, there were approximately 22,000 motor courts in operation in the United States. But by 1950, there were 50,000 motels. And a year later, the motels would actually surpass hotels in consumer demand. So that's like the big city multi-story hotels. Many motels, and this is what I remember, had colorful neon signs. And they would advertise various things like they had air cooling or they were cooled by refrigeration. Just a way of saying that during a hot summertime, they had air conditioning. Uh, Some employed novelty architecture, such as wigwams or teepees or train cabooses. Remember some of those motels? It says in 1950, mom and pop motels began adding amenities as competition grew. These would include things such as swimming pools or color TVs, which were a real luxury back in 1960. They also added in-room gimmicks such as coin-operated magic fingers vibrating beds. Do you remember those? You would put 10 cents in or a quarter in, and, uh, and the bed would vibrate, shake for about 5 or 10 minutes. Just a crazy, crazy thing. But I remember as a kid, oh, man, mom, dad, give me a dime, give me a quarter, whatever it was. I read later that the reason those fell out of popularity is people would go in and try to pry open the coin box to uh, steal the money. There were some motel chains that were built by single owners who developed several properties. For instance, there was an Alamo Plaza Hotel Courts, which started in Waco, Texas back in the late 30s. But by 1955, there were more than 20 of them, but they were all in that area of the country. They were owned by the same owner, They all advertised a similar architecture, and they they offered Simmons furniture and beauty rest mattresses and telephones in every room. You remember those, Chester? 
you stated at one of those in Waco or near Waco? Huh, how about that? Chester actually remembers that, uh, that one of those original chains. But it was in 1951 that a real estate developer by the name of Kemmons Wilson became disillusioned by the motels his family had encountered on a road trip that they took from their home in Memphis to Washington, D.C. Each night they found that the rooms they were forced to stay in were inconsistent. While some were well-kept, others were filthy. Few properties offered swimming pools, and they had no on-site restaurants, which meant they had to drive several miles to buy dinner each night. While the rooms themselves were normally fairly inexpensive, about 8 to $10 per night, most of the motor courts charged $2 extra per child, substantially increasing the cost of a family vacation. Will Wilson decided to build his own motel along US-70, which was the main highway linking Nashville and Memphis. For her name, he adopted the title from a 1942 musical, Holiday Inn. He determined every new Holiday Inn would offer a television set, air conditioning, a restaurant, and a pool, and all would meet a long list of quality standards. His goal was to ensure that a guest in Memphis had the same experience as guests in Daytona Beach or Akron, Ohio. And so began motel franchising with the Holiday Inn, and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, if you ever plan to motor west, Jack, take my way, it's the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. To this kind of kid 
Once again, saluting the Jack Benny Show, and especially those episodes that featured Ronald Coleman and his long-suffering wife, Benita Hume. And tonight we have a good one. This one was originally broadcast on February the 1st, 1948, and it's generally referred to as Jack and Mary Go See Ronald Coleman's New Movie. Just a couple of notes before you listen to this these things might help you appreciate some of the humor that you're going to hear in this uh, particular episode. First of all, Dorothy Dix. Dorothy Dix was the forerunner of Dear Abby and Ann Landers. She wrote an advice column that was particularly designed to help people with marriage problems. During her heyday, she was the highest paid and most read female journalist in the world. She offered principally advice on marriage, and her column was published in more than 270 newspapers. In 1940, for example, Dix was receiving more than 100,000 letters a year, and her reading audience was estimated at over 60 million. She was read the world over. In the United States, in Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, several countries in South America, China, and Canada. So you will hear a reference to... Dorothy Dix. Now, another person you're going to hear referenced is Tom Brenneman. Tom Brenneman had a radio show in the mornings that was syndicated. It came from Hollywood. In fact, it came from his very own restaurant. And it was called, what was it, Hollywood Breakfast or Breakfast in Hollywood? I'll get the exact name. He used to uh, invite people in to have breakfast in his restaurant, and they would broadcast a show from there. And one of the things that he used to do that I guess people got a real hoot from or over was he would put on hats that uh, ladies were wearing in the audience. He would take them from the ladies and wear them. Now, exactly why that worked on radio, I'm not too sure. But nonetheless, that's what he used to do. And then each of the ladies that would loan him her hat would get a kiss by the host. And that will play into what you hear tonight. Also, finally, in 1948, the 1948 Rose Bowl, played on January 1st of that year, was not kind to the University of Southern California. In that Rose Bowl game, USC lost to Michigan 49 to nothing. Okay, that's just some notes that you might uh, find significant as you listen to the show. So here we go, back to 1948, February the 1st, 
And Jack and Mary go see Ronald Coleman's new movie. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, last night was a big night in Hollywood. The occasion was a special showing of Ronald Coleman's new picture, A Double Life. Naturally, all the important stars in Hollywood received invitations to attend this gala affair. And while all this was going on, where was our little star? Uh, Rochester, hand me my pajamas. I'm going to bed. Here you are, boss. No, 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 my woolen ones. The nights are awfully cold. I know it's cold, but you've already got three comforters, two quilts, an afghan, and four electric blankets with a direct line to Boulder Dam. <laughs> Never mind. Just turn out the lights and I'll go to sleep. Don't you want me to read to you like I always do? Yes. Uh, pick up one of those trade papers, either the variety or the reporter. There okay. Now, let's see. Say, boss, look what it says. What? Tonight at the Academy Theater, there will be a special showing of Ronald Coleman's new Universal International picture, A Double Life. I know, I know. It says all the big stars in Hollywood have been, have been invited to attend. Yeah, I know. Didn't they mail you an invitation? Well, frankly, I don't know whether they did or not. I, I didn't even bother looking. Oh, boss, come now. <laughs> what? This morning, when the mailman came by, you grabbed his bag and went through it like an octopus with a mix master in each hand. I was looking for a reply from Dorothy Dix. <laughs> anyway, who wants to go to a Hollywood premiere? You always see the same people. Barbara Stanwyck will be there with Robert Taylor. Lauren Bacall will be there with Humphrey Bogart. Lana Turner will be there with... Let me see today's paper. <laughs> anyway, Rochester, believe me, I'm not mad because I didn't get an invitation to the preview. As a matter of fact, if Universal Studios, if William Getz, the executive producer, if Ronald Coleman himself called me on the phone right now, I wouldn't go to that... I'll get it, Rochester, I'll get it. Hello? <laughs> Is this Sam's Meat Market? No, it isn't. <laughs> Who was it, boss? Oh, some guy wanted Sam's Meat Market. Sam's Meat Market? That's the new place down in the corner. They're having a big opening tonight. They are? Didn't you get an invitation to that either? <laughs> I wouldn't go if I did. You always see the same things. Yeah. Liver will be there with bacon. Sirloin will be there Now, with... cut that out. <laughs> Now, Rochester, I'm going to bed, so turn out the light, will you? You'll get it, boss. You'll get it. I've got it. Hello? Hello, Jack. This is Mary. Oh, hello, Mary. I'm glad I caught you. I thought maybe you had already left to see Ronald Coleman's picture. Uh, no, Mary. I was supposed to go, but I don't know. When you've been a star as long as I have, you don't, you don't get excited about those things, you know? Gee, and I thought we could go together. Mm, no, no, Mary. I'm ready for bed. Oh, that's too bad. I have two tickets. What, 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 what was that, Mary? What, what, what did you say, what, what did you say, Mary? I what? said I've got, got, got the two, 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 two tickets to Ronald Coleman's preview. 
Mary, just because you got tickets, you don't have to be so nervous about it. Look, I was ready for bed, but I wouldn't let you down. So while I get dressed, you jump in a cab and pick me up in ten minutes. Okay, Jack. I may be a few minutes late. I want to stop off at the florist and get a corsage. Good, good. <laughs> while you're there, get one for yourself, too. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, come over as soon as you can. Goodbye. Rochester! Rochester, I'm going to the opening. I knew Sam wouldn't let you down. <laughs> Not the meat market. Now, stop jabbering and help me dress. Hiya, Jackson. The door was open, so I came right in. Oh, hello, Phil. Where are you going? Oh, I promised Mary I'd take her to a special showing of Ronald Coleman's new picture. No kidding, Jackson. You mean you got an invitation? I certainly did. That's why I'm putting on this tuxedo. You may not know it, Phil, but for the past 20 years, I've been rubbing elbows with the most important people in show business. From the looks of them sleeves, you must have been rubbing them pretty hard. <laughs> All right, so it's a little thin around the elbows. Now, pardon me while I get dressed, will I'll you? I'll help you, Jackson. While you're putting on your shirt, I'll button your shoes. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Oh, Rochester, hand me my wing collar, will you please? Yes, sir. Uh-oh. What's the matter? You wear a size 15 and a half collar, and this is only a 14. Oh, that's all right. We can make it work. Put it on. Okay. Here's the collar button. Yeah, I got it. Now, hold still. Boy, this collar's really stiff. Yeah. Just a minute now. Mm. There, I got it. Yeah. How's that, boss? I I guess it's all right, but it's so tight I can hide. <laughs> oh, darn it. Slipped off the collar button. Now, try it again, Rochester. Boss, this collar's too tight for you. Well, pull it harder. I'm getting it. I'm getting... Hold still. There. Gosh, this collar's so tight I can hardly breathe. Phil, how do I look? Like Herbert Hoover with a crew haircut. <laughs> Don't be so funny. Oh, there's Mary. Now, all I have to do is snap on this bow tie, and I'll be on my way. <laughs> Darn it. There it goes again. Rochester, where's my bow tie? It went out the window and headed for Capistrano. <laughs> well, get me another one. Coming, Mary, coming. Phil, can I drop you off anyplace? No, Jackson, I'll stay here. I'm a little hungry. Rochester, get me an olive and a glass. <laughs> okay, Phil, make yourself at home, will you? Say, Mary, don't look now, but ever since we've been riding in this cab, there's been a moving van following us. I know. What? So many times I've gone to the theater and found out I left the tickets on the piano. So this time I'm taking the piano with me. <laughs> Say, you know, Mary, that's a oh, good... Oh, quiet. You fall for everything. <laughs> I've got the tickets right here. <laughs> And the invitations, too. Let me see. <laughs> Universal International cordially invites you to attend a special showing of A Double Life starring Ronald Coleman. Say, gee, gee, that's a beautiful invitation, isn't it? Here are, folks, Academy Theater. Come on, Mary. How much is that, driver? A dollar sixty. <laughs> Jack, what happened? Nothing, nothing. Here you are, driver. Keep the change. Thanks. Jack, fix your collar. I'm trying to, but darn it, I've lost my bow tie. No, you haven't. They've got the searchlight on it. It'll be down in a minute. 
<laughs> oh, yes. Here it comes, there. I got it. Oh, no, that's the one that was headed for Capistrano. Here it is. Fix my collar. <clears throat> there. Come on, Mary, let's go in. Gosh, look, look, all of us big stars are here. Come on, hurry. Hold your own invitations, please. You spectators, stand back. Let them in. How do you do, Mr. Gable? Good evening, Mr. Taylor. How are you, Mr. Peck? How do you do, Miss Livingston? I told you spectators to stand back. I'm with her! <laughs> oh, well then go right in, mister. Mister. He doesn't even know I'm Jack Benny. Well, don't tell him. He has something to look forward to. What? Come on, Jack. Hurry. The lights are starting to dim. Okay. Hey, Mary, here are two seats. You're right in this row. A little more than halfway in. Follow me. Pardon 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 me. Oh, darn it. There's only one seat. We'll have to go back. Pardon me. 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 Jack, come back. You went out the exit. Oh, yes. Here we are, Mary. Here are two seats on the aisle. Good. Jack, we just made it. The travelogue is coming on. Oh, yes. As the sun comes up over the famous diamond head in Honolulu, we pay another visit to that land of enchantment resting far out in the blue Pacific, the Hawaiian Islands. Well, Jack, Jack. Huh? It's me, Don Wilson. Oh, hello, Don. I didn't see you sitting behind me. Who are you with? Your quartet, the sportsman. Oh, good, good. And now let us pay a brief visit to one of the lesser-known islands where we find Chief Humanukanui and his people doing their native dance. Gee, this is good, isn't it, Mary? Jack, Jack. Don, I want to see this travelogue. Shh, quiet back there. Yes, Don, quiet. You're disturbing the people. Jack, what a coincidence. The quartet has a commercial worked out that fits to the music they're playing. All right, all right, but Don, not now. We're in a theater. Not now. Now? Good. Don. Go ahead, fellas. Very softly. Don, Don, we're in the theater. I can't hear him. Da, Wait a minute. Hey, 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 hey
Your picture. Yeah, look, Ronald Coleman in a double life. Gee, what a crowd. Hurry, Jack, or we'll never get out to the lobby. Okay. Gosh, Mary, that was one of the best pictures I ever saw. You know? Yes, and it was such an appropriate title, A Double Life. Yeah. It really fits. Mr. Coleman was perfect as the Broadway star who was afraid to play a fellow. Well... Oh, fine. I suppose you could have played a fellow better than Ronald Coleman. No, Mary, I don't think the people would like me and Ronnie's part in the picture, but then, on the other hand, do you think the public would have liked Coleman and the horn blows at midnight? <laughs> they wouldn't have liked that picture with Eisenhower in it. I guess not. Say, Mary. Mary, isn't that Mr. and Mrs. Coleman over there? Ronnie and Benita? Where? There. Just coming out of the theater. Oh, say, Ronnie... Ronnie? What is it, Benita? Say, isn't that Jack Benny over there? Where? Oh, for the love. Well, let's hurry, Benita. Perhaps he hasn't seen us. I think he... I think he has. He's coming towards us. Well, I've got an idea, so he won't recognize me. Ronnie, Ronnie, stop. What are you doing with my hat? I'm going to wear it. Maybe he'll think I'm Tom Brenneman. Yes, yes, but then you'll have to kiss him. <laughs> anyway, let, let's try and get rid of him quickly. I want to go to Ciro's and celebrate. All right, but don't create a scene. Be pleasant to him, and perhaps he'll go away. Yes, you tell me the same thing about your mother, and she's been with us for 20 years. <laughs> well, Ronnie, Benita, how are you? Hello, Jack. Hello, Mary. Hello, Benita. Say, Ronnie, your picture was simply wonderful. Oh, thank you, Jack. Glad you liked it. Like it? You know, Ronnie, watching your performance this evening was one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had. Oh, well... Not only is A Double Life a great picture, but your acting was the finest I've ever seen on the stage or screen. Oh, oh now, now, Mary, I... Gee, you were absolutely brilliant as a fellow. And when you played yourself, you were so suave and so handsome. Well, I... Mary, stop. You're embarrassing him. Benita, you keep out of this. <laughs> You know, Ronnie, my favorite scene in the whole picture was when you, as a fellow, accused your wife, Desdemona, of being unfaithful because you saw another man carrying her handkerchief. Oh, you mean the speech where I said, by heaven, I saw the handkerchief in his hand. Oh, 
perjured woman, thou dost tone my heart and makes me call what I intend to do a murder, which I thought a sacrifice. I saw the handkerchief. Yes, yes, that's the speech I mean. Only, Ronnie, if I were playing the part, <laughs> I believe I would have done it something like this. By heaven. <laughs> I saw the handkerchief in his hand. Oh, perjured woman! Thou just stole my heart and makes me call what I intend to do a murder. <laughs> Which I thought a sacrifice. I saw the hanky. <laughs> there, how did that sound? Wonderful. Phil Harris couldn't have read it better. He couldn't have read it at all. But, Ronnie, how can you say that? Let's get the depth of that last line. I saw the handkerchief. <laughs> oh, there goes my collar again. Where's my bow tie? I swallowed it. No, no, here it is on the sidewalk. Excuse me a minute. Where's my collar button? I knew I swallowed something. Well, I got another one here in my vest pocket. Oh, say, Ronnie... Ronnie, if you don't mind my talking about your picture again... Oh, not at all, not at all. Well, I've seen you in a lot of pictures, and I thought that in this one, you were... You were... Well, thank you. No, no, let me finish, let me finish. <laughs> I, uh, I thought that you were miscast. Oh. So you... You thought I was miscast? Yes, you see, in the picture, they have you turn killer and commit murder. And Ronnie, in real life, I mean, you... You couldn't possibly murder anybody. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> huh? Well, it's getting late. We'd better be running along. No, no, Benita. No, no, you can't go home yet. This is the opening of Ronnie's new picture. A night like this calls for a celebration. I know. Let's all go over to my house and play the slot machine. No, no, thanks. <laughs> no, thanks. Benita and I are going to Ciro's. Goodbye. Wait a minute. Uh, Jack, it's getting kind of late. Maybe we ought to go home. Mary, we can't run off and leave the Coleman's. They'll think I'm snubbing them. <laughs> now, now, we'll all go to Ciro's. Come on, come on, everybody. Oh, taxi! Taxi! Look, look, Jack, we can't all get into one taxi. There are four of us. Okay, you folks take this cab. Mary and I will take the next one. See you at Ciro's. Benita, what a fool I was to let Benny know where we were going. Oh, what's the difference, darling? And anyway, Mary's such a nice girl. Oh, I have nothing against her. I like Mary. It's that Benny I can't stand. <laughs> lately, it seems that everywhere I go, I run into him. It happens to me, too. Last Thursday afternoon, I saw him at Greer Garson's tea. Benny? At a tea party for women? Yes. He had a shawl over his head and came around to tell our fortunes. <laughs> No. Yes. Then he took his violin, played golden earrings, and passed around a tambourine. You mean Benny himself passed the tambourine? Yes. Oh, that's too bad. His monkey must have died. <laughs> Look, darling, let's forget about him. Let's talk about us. About us? Mm. You know, I didn't have a chance to tell you how much I enjoyed Double Life. Oh. I think it is the finest picture you've ever made. Well, thank you very much, darling. I mean, you know, I'm just a virus critic. 
I think your performance in that picture was magnificent. Well. You, you're wonderful. Oh. And Ronnie. Yes? I bought a new fur coat. <laughs> what did you say, dear? I said I thought your performance in the picture was... Here we are, zero. <laughs> Certainly lucky to get this ringside table. Yes, I hear they have a wonderful floor show. Well, it was nice we all arrived together and no one was kept waiting. Yes, yes, uh, it was, wasn't it? Say, Jack, it's kind of chilling in here. Will you please get me my coat? Certainly, Mary. What about you, Benita? Is your coat checked? No, it's Persian lamb. <laughs> <laughs> Say, that's rather good, Benita. Yes, I know. I heard it on Fred Allen's program. <laughs> Ordering our food so we'll be through eating when the floor show starts. All right, I'll call the waiter. Oh, waiter, waiter. Yeah. <laughs> waiter, I'll have a shrimp cocktail, filet mignon rare, and asparagus. Uh, very good, madame. I'll have a Caesar salad, lobster a la Newburgh, and broccoli. Yes, madame. I think I'll have some consomme, prime ribs of beef, medium rare, and a baked potato. Uh, yes, sir. And now, what about you, shoulders? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll have a potage au jour, a salade avec Roquefort, a la bouffe avec Bordelais, a pomme de terre. Well, get here. <laughs> Never mind the comment. Just bring what I ordered. Uh, say, Jack, when did you start eating French food? Since they devaluated the Franks. <laughs> Would you like something to drink with your dinner? We have some wonderful vintage champagne. Mums, 37, Cordon Rouge, 33, and Piper Heidsick, 35. Uh, make mine Schlitz, 47. <laughs> that, uh, that was a good year, wasn't it? Not for USC. <laughs> Look, I never... Never mind the wisecracks. You, you ought to pay a little more attention to your job. Some waiter. Look at this tablecloth and the napkins. I've never seen such dirty linen. Well, you do them for us, Wong Fu. <laughs> That's besides the point. I've never seen such a rude, impertinent waiter. I got a good mind... Stop mic. raising your voice to me. What? Nobody asked you to come in here in the first place. You spoiled my whole evening. That's the last straw. How about you and me stepping outside? This is Ciro's. We can do it right here. <laughs> Look, waiter, just go get our orders. Will oh, you all right. Ronnie, you can come out from under the table. People have stopped staring. Well, now let us all have a pleasant evening. Come on. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> Well, that was really a delicious dinner. Did you enjoy yours, Ronnie? Yeah, I certainly did. Uh, waiter, give me the check, please. Oh, no, 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 Ronnie. This is, uh, this is my little party. Oh, but after all, Jack, we're celebrating my new picture. I don't care. Waiter, don't listen to him. Uh, give me the check. All right, but you'll hate yourself in the morning. 
Never mind. Give it to me. Thank you. Hey, Ronnie, this is the first time I've ever seen Jack pick up a check. I wonder what happened. Somebody must have spiked his slits. <laughs> a waiter, give me your pencil. I want to check these items. Now, let's see. You know, this really has been a grand evening. Yes, the floor show is wonderful. Kugar's music is so exciting. And it's Jerry Lester, such a funny comedian. And the atmosphere is nice and cozy. Please, please, would you all be quiet? I'm going over the check. (laughs) Now, let's see. Shrimp cocktail, a dollar. Consomme, 85 cents. Caesar salad, a dollar and a quarter. Filet mignon. Whoops. <laughs> hmm. Lobster. Take... Hmm. 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 Ronnie. Ronnie, did you have an extra cup of coffee? <laughs> no, Jack, I had milk. Well, where did this extra cup of coffee come from, waiter? You ordered it. I didn't order it, and I want it taken off the bill. Oh, Jack, please. Now, you keep out of this, Mary. Waiter, I'm not going to pay for this extra cup of coffee. I want to... No, Jack, Jack, let me pay the check. No, no, Ronnie, this is my party. This is my party. Now, look, waiter, I don't mind paying for what we got, but I know that no one here had an extra cup of coffee. Oh, Jack, for heaven's sake. I'll have this bill corrected immediately. Ronnie, the orchestra's playing. Let's dance our way out the back door. All right, Anita, come quick. Hurry up. Now, what about it, waiter? You ordered the coffee and you'll pay for it. I ordered it, but I changed my mind and you took it back. Did you see me leave the table with it? Yes. By heaven, I saw the coffee in your hand. <laughs> oh, perjured waiter. What? Now the stone my heart. And makes me call what I intend to do a murder. Well. Which I thought a sacrifice. I saw the coffee. <laughs> oh, darn it. There goes my collar. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman for being with us tonight. And to Dennis Day, my best wishes and congratulations. Good night, folks. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. From February the 1st, 1948, that was Jack and Mary go see Ronald Coleman's new movie on the Jack Benny Show. The movie, of course, was entitled It's a Double Life, or A Double Life, and Coleman actually won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his portrayal of this uh, Shakespearean actor in the film. The film itself wasn't well-received, didn't make a lot of money, but... Coleman got the Academy Award for Best Actor. Many think that it was because the Academy was actually recognizing his role in Lost Horizon. But who really knows about those things? One nice thing with Coleman winning the Academy Award that year, his Oscar played in several future Benny shows, 
and we'll be playing those in the weeks ahead. By the way, that little salute there to Dennis Day at the end, the congratulatory message from Jack, that must have had to do with uh, Dennis Day's marriage. Dennis married Peggy Olmquist in 1948, and their marriage lasted for 40 years until Dennis died from Lou Gehrig's disease in 1990, excuse me, 1988. Dennis and Peggy had 10 children in all during their, during their marriage. We talked a little bit about Tom Brenneman during the uh, introduction to the show. His show was indeed called Breakfast in Hollywood. It was an unscripted show that included audience participation. And it was done every morning at his restaurant on uh, Vine Street in Hollywood. In 1946, Brenneman and United Artists released a film called Breakfast in Hollywood. And it was a way to promote the radio program. The film was not really very good, but it gives us some insight into the radio program. There are recordings of the radio program circulating, but I thought this one was kind of interesting. So I thought I'd play a little clip for you. In this clip, you're going to hear Zazu Pitts and then had a Hopper. Now, it's interesting if you watch this, so you can go on YouTube and search for uh, Breakfast in Hollywood 1946. You can actually see the whole film. It appears that the ladies all wore really daffy hats, hoping that Brenneman would pick them to try on their hat. It kind of reminded me of what was that show, uh, Let's Make a Deal, where everybody would dress up like soup cans and, and crazy things like that. Well, that's sort of what it was here, but it was with hats. So this clip is from the film from 1946, Breakfast in Hollywood. And it's not real good sound quality, but I only snipped out about a minute. Now then, we're going for a hat. <laughs> this silly routine every morning. I don't know what you're laughing about. Who are you, please? Mary Calder. Mary Calder. Where are you from, Mary? Uh, Kansas. From Kansas? Where did you get that silly number? Just a little thing I cooked up myself. You cooked it up yourself. Looks like it boiled over. <laughs> Look at there. That is a monstrosity down there. Hmm. I simply have to get a closer look at that thing. No, we're talking about you. Don't look over your shoulder. Who are you? Elvira Spriggan. <laughs> and where are you from, Miss Spriggan? Pomona. Pomona? <laughs> I should have known. That is the silliest thing I've seen in this place in a long time. Where do you live now? In Hollywood. In Hollywood. That looks like a typical Hollywood model. Oh. What is it, Bobby? That? Oh, my goodness. This is Mr. even worse. Beth? Do you want me to take it off? No, not just right now. Do you, do you like it? Yes, I'll be back. <laughs> Look at this thing. Hello, Tom. Ted, it's awfully nice of you to come over and say hello to us this oh, morning. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Pleasure. And do you know Mrs. Cooper, Gary's mother? No. Hello, you? Mrs. Cooper. Gee, it's nice to see you. How's Gary? Very well, thank you. Mm-hmm. That's grand. Well. Did you have a nice breakfast? Oh, the loveliest bacon. Oh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) And Mrs. LeSeur, Joan Crawford's mother. Oh, hello. How are you? How is Joan? Fine. Mm -hmm. Please give her my regards. I certainly will. Thank you. Thank you. Ed, I know that you're famous for daffy hats, but what is that supposed to represent? Well, when I left home this morning, it was a goldfish bowl. Ed, I simply have to try it on. Do you mind? What do you suppose I wore it for? (laughs) (laughs) Miss Cooper, would you please hold the microphone? Just like that. Thank you. There you are. This is the silliest thing I have ever seen, even for you, Etta. <laughs> there you are, kids. <laughs> Wait a minute. 
to Smarties. After all, on me, it didn't attract a duck. I know, but brother, what an invitation to a woodpecker. Well, like I said, the sound quality's not real good, but that was the uh, a clip from Breakfast in Hollywood, the film that uh, depicted the radio show, the popular radio show from the 40s, starring Tom Brenneman. Sadly, on April 28, 1948, just about two and a half months after this Jack Benny show was broadcast, Brenneman was getting ready to do the Breakfast in Hollywood show, and early that morning, he had a heart attack and died. Gary Moore took over the hosting duties after that, but the show quickly failed without the uh, personality of Tom Brenneman. And outlaws, black guys and southpaws, and good dogs and all kinds of cats. Dirt roads and white lines and all kinds of stop signs. I stand right here where I'm at, cause I wear my own kind of hat. There's two kind of lovers and two kind of brothers and two kind of babies to hold. There's two kind of cherries and two kind of fairies and two kind of mothers I'm told and told. Even cowboys and outlaws and right guys and southpaws, good dogs and all kinds of cats. Dirt roads and white lines and all kinds of stop signs. I stand right here where I'm at. And two kind of lovers And two kind of babies to hold There's two kind of cherries And two kind of fairies And two kind of mothers I'm told and told Yeah, but cowboys and outlaws And right guys and southpaws Good dogs and all kinds of cats There's dirt roads and white lines And all kinds of stops but I stand right here where I'm at Cause I wear my own kind of hat
No. No! that music means. It means it's time for us to travel back to the old west. We're going to Dodge City, Kansas. We're going to walk shoulder to shoulder up Front Street with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to meet Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. We have a fun episode tonight and a poignant episode as well. You know, this uh, whole show this week seems to be character-driven. We've had some very interesting characters in both our uh, episode of Dragnet and also in the Jack Benny show. But who you are going to meet now are by far the most entertaining, the most interesting of all the characters that we've heard tonight. These are two of the most inept, bumbling crooks that you're ever going to want to meet. They are named Orlo and Gorse. They were created by John Meston in a script that not only uh, will make you laugh out loud at the beginning, but maybe even shed a tear by the end. It's a good one. It's entitled Bum's Rush, and it was first heard on CBS back on the 18th of April in 1953. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. when there's no moon. You afraid of something, Marlo? Of me? You. 
What are you afraid of? Of course, I ain't been much afraid of anything since the second battle of Bull Run. That's so? Oh. I took my first bullet at Manassas Gap. <laughs> I thought sure I'd die, but I didn't. That's nothing. When I got shot on the Chattahoochee River over in Georgia, I knew I wouldn't die. How'd you know? I just knew, that's all. Weren't you afraid? Afraid of what? Dying. I've never been afraid to die. Well, I'm not afraid. Not anymore. Not since Bull Run. And what's all this about there being no moon, Arlo? I said I'm not afraid to die. I didn't say I'm not afraid of anything. Oh, shut up. Okay. Hey, Gorse. Yeah? Wished we could stop and light a fire. What? I got some pork to cook. Listen here, Orlo. You trying to tie the rope around your own neck? No. Then eat your meat raw, you hear? Raw meat gives me the bellyache. You needn't worry about that, Orlo. Those people back in Dodge, they got a cure for bellyache. They have? You, they have. A lariat rope over the limb of a cottonwood tree. Oh, they ain't going to catch us. They will you go building bonfires all over the prairie to cook your dang pork with. Well, I'll just build a little bitty Indian fire, Gorse. Oh, huh? shut up. <coughs> Orlo? Hmm? Look over there. Where? Where? Over there. At the foot of that little rise. Uh, I don't see nothing. That cabin, you do too see. Oh, that. What about it? There's no light in it, you fool. And there's no smoke. It's deserted. Well, that's good, ain't it, Gorse? Nobody to tell the posse which way we went. How do you know they got a posse? Well, they should have. Anyways, we'll sleep in that cabin. Somebody does come along, we can fight them off from there. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Come on. Good. 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 <coughs> it's big, ain't it, Gorse? Big enough for us, anyway. Come on, maybe mm. there's some food inside. There's a horse in here. Must have got in and the door blew shut. Poor thing. Well, get him out. Yeah. Easy, boy. Easy now, son. Easy, boy. I, I got him. Now, outside, fella. Outside. Come on. Yeah. Hey, that's funny. What's funny? That horse. He's all wet with lather. Lather? Hold it yeah. right there. Hey. There's somebody in there. Now, get your hands up. You're framed in the door and you'll die if you make a wrong move. Now turn around and stand there. And I'll take your guns.
Who are you, mister? All right, get outside. Slow. All right, that's far enough. Now you can turn around. All right, you, what's your name? Orlo. Orlo what? Just Orlo. And you? William Goss, but I don't use the William. I'll remember that. Look, mister, we don't mean no harm. We just thought your cabin was deserted and we could sleep in there tonight. It's deserted, but you won't be sleeping anywhere tonight. Now, mister, you got no right to... You'll sleep in Dodge when we get there. Oh, no. No, we can't go back to Dodge. No? Why can't you? Well, you see, we shot a man there today. This morning it was. Although you shut up. But, Gorse, you know we can't go back. I'll shut you up. Hold it, Gorse. Well, he always did talk too much. The war made him like that, mister. He was all right before the war. So they say, anyway. Now, listen to me, both of you. This isn't my cabin. It isn't? Then why'd you put us out of it? I'm trying to tell you why. I'm a United States Marshal. What? Oh, gosh. We got caught. You're both under arrest for murder. Well, I'll be. So that's why his horse was hot. He'd been chasing us, Gorse. How could he have been chasing us? He was in front of us. I've been on your tail ever since you ran out of Dodge. The trail you were following led right here, so I made a circle and waited for you. Does that explain things? Hey, that's pretty smart, isn't it, Gorse? (laughs) We was riding too slow. Yeah. But if I'd known what I was following, I think I'd have just ridden up behind and yelled at you to stop. We'd have run. Now explain something to me, will you? What are you men? We're just friends. Yeah, me and Gorse been friends for a long no, time. No, 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 that, that's not what I meant. Look, you shot that store clerk in Dodge and you killed him. But you're sure not gunmen and you're not bandits. Now, what are you? We're broke. We needed some money. But he wouldn't give it to us. He grabbed a gun instead out under the counter. And he'd have shot us with it, too. Uh, and we had to kill him. That's all there is to it, Marshal. Not quite, I'm afraid. You killed a man, and I'm taking you in for murder. They're going to hang us? Not they. The law, maybe. But you'll get a fair trial. Won't matter. We've done it. We'll hang. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Gorse. We'll hang, sure. I don't know. I suppose you'd have killed somebody sooner or later. All right, get your horses. Ain't you going to handcuff us or nothing? Why? Oh, no reason, Marshal. I was just asking. I thought so. All right, come on. It's a long ride to Dodge. It took all night to ride back to Dodge. But I didn't have to watch my prisoners any more than if they'd been a couple of riders I'd thrown in with on the trail. Maybe it was all their years in the war, in the army, that made them do whatever I, as a marshal, told them to do. The idea of not obeying me never occurred to him. Next morning, I had Chester lock him up, and then I went off to get some sleep. About noon, I got up, ate something, and dropped into the Texas Trail. Sit down, Matt. Yeah, sure, Kitty. I uh, hear you brought in those murderers. Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, 
Aren't you glad? Yeah, sure, Killian. I'm glad. Well, they're the ones, aren't they? You got the right men. Yeah, they're the ones. They did it. Matt, sometimes I don't know Kitty. What... They're, they're just a couple of not very bright men who, who've had too much war. I guess they just got used to killing. I don't think it means anything at all to them. Well, then... They're what? not mean and they're not vicious. They're just kind of loco. Well, that's what makes them dangerous, I guess. Marshal mm. Dillon? Uh, yeah. I hear you brought in two men this morning, uh, Gorse and Orlo. Uh-huh. How do you know their names? Everybody does by now. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, they didn't do it, Marshal. What? They're innocent. They didn't kill that clerk. Who are you, mister? My name is Blaine, George Blaine. All right, Blaine, what's this all about? Oh, what I said, Marshal. They're innocent. You see, uh, I and Ned and Lou, well, over there at the bar, we saw them just leaving Kelly's stable when that shooting took place. Would you swear to that in court? Why, sure, Marshal. <laughs> How come you arrested them anyway? Well, I'll tell you, Blaine. They shot a man. Nobody saw that killer. Look, I don't know who you are or what your interest in this is, but they admit killing that clerk. So why don't you just go back and join your friends at the bar and forget about it, huh? No, Marshal, we won't forget about it. You shouldn't have arrested those men. And what's more, we're going to see to it they don't stay arrested. Oh? You want to see to it right now, Mr. Blaine? No. No, there are other men around here interested in justice, Marshal. And I think we'll talk to them first. Don't do it, Blaine. Don't get anything like that started here in Dodge. See you later, Marshal. Who is he, Kitty? I don't know, Matt. He and his two friends came in on the Santa Fe from St. Louis a couple of days ago. That's all I know. I wonder what they got in mind. Oh, they've been drinking. Just talk, Matt. Yeah, maybe. I'll see you later, Kitty. So long. Hurry back, Matt. No, sir, Mr. Dillon, that fellow come here, but I wouldn't let him talk to prisoners. Was he alone, or did he have his two friends with him, Chester? Oh, he was alone, sir. Oh. But I did notice a couple of men waiting around outside, now that you mention it. You uh, haven't heard anything about this Blaine or his friends the last day or so, have you? No, sir. Nobody's mentioned them. Around me, anyway. Well, it sure stumps me. You think maybe they're going to cause trouble, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. They might try, but it'd be easier to stop if I knew what was behind it. Yes, sir. Yeah, mobs have tried to open this jail before, but to lynch somebody, not to turn them loose. Mighty curious, all right. Now, Chester, I'm going to have a talk with the prisoners. Maybe they might know something. Well, it's worth a try, sir. Yeah. Gorse, it's the marshal. Hello, marshal. Hello, Arlo. 
Gorse. How are you, Marshal? Well, is Chester treating you all right? Well, it uh, wasn't much of the bait we had this morning, but the noon meal was fine. Marshal? Hmm? We get supper, too? Of course you do. Hey, when they gonna hang us, Marshal? Well, uh... Harlow, you haven't been tried yet. Nothing's gonna happen until you have a trial. How long will that take, Marshal? Well, what difference it make, Gorse, as long as we get fed every day? Listen, you man, I, I want to ask you something. Sure, Marshal. Have you ever heard of a man named uh, Blaine? He's tall, has black hair. Blaine. He's uh... Wasn't that the fella's name who was here this morning all over? Yeah, that's right, Blaine. Here this morning? Chester said he kept him out of here. Oh, he he come around back, outside, talk through the window there. He seemed like a nice fella. Sort of crazy, though. Now, what do you say that, Arlo? What do you want? Oh, he kept saying he had uh, witnesses and all like that. Said we're innocent. We shouldn't be in here. Well, what'd you tell him? Well, we told him how you caught us and what we did and all. We told him there wasn't any witnesses we could see. Just us. And that clerk, but we killed him. Sure, but Blaine was saying him and his friends saw us down by some corral or something. I don't know. He was all mixed up. Tell me, have uh, either one of you ever seen this Blaine before? Oh, no, Marshal. Never laid eyes on him. And that's the truth. That's right, Marshal. Me, Gorse, we never tell lies. Yeah, I know. Did uh, Blaine tell you what he's going to do? What his plans are? Nary a word, Marshal. Except he did say for us to set up a holler that we didn't kill that fella. Oh, he's crazy, that Blaine. I couldn't get his drift at all. Well, I'll tell you what it is, Orlo. For some reason that I don't know, Blaine wants you two out of jail. He may come here with a mob and try and get you out. Well, he can't do that. We're under arrest here. Yeah, I know. But he might try. Hmm. What'll we do about it, Marshal? Nothing, Gorse, nothing. I'll handle it. You sure, Marshal? Uh, let me know if you need anything, huh? Oh, we're fine, Marshal. Thanks just the same. Sure. Okay. I'll see you later, then. Ah, hello, Doc. What are you doing here? I heard there might be some excitement, Matt. Oh, you did, huh? Yeah, right here at the jail, too. <laughs> Give Doc a gun, Chester. We can use another man. Name your preference, Doc. Shotgun or rifle? You sit right where you are, Chester. I'm not a gunfighter. My work begins where you fellas leave off. Well, you may have a busy evening, Doc. But I hope not. You never can tell, Matt. <laughs> but I take things as they come. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. I better go and get my office cleaned up. If anyone gets shot, you send them right up there. It doesn't improve a man's temper to spend the afternoon sitting around and waiting for a mob to form. A mob that's going to head his way when it gets its spirits high enough. Chester and I didn't talk much. We just sat and waited. Long about dusk, we saw a couple of dozen men gather in the middle of the plaza. And then Blaine appeared. 
and he began haranguing them. And the crowd grew. In a little while, it started moving down Front Street, down toward the jail and us. Looks like everybody in Dodge is taking an interest, Mr. Dillon. We'll use shotguns, Chester. I never saw a mob yet that was eager to jump a shotgun. Yes, sir. Here's yours, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, thanks. Well, let's go meet him outside, Chester. All right, sir. Here, this is good enough. Pretty big crowd coming, Mr. Dillon. Uh, maybe most of them are just curious. I sure am, anyway. What do you mean, sir? Well, I haven't got this Blaine figured, that's all. Hold in, man. I'll see if I can talk some sense into the marshal first. Well, marshal, I was right. There seem to be a lot of men in Dodge interested in justice. We want Orlo and Gorse out of that jail, marshal. We want them freed. Aren't you going to say anything, marshal? I don't see your two partners, Blaine, whatever their names are. Don't you worry about them, Marshal. Now, you tell us, uh, you going to turn those prisoners loose or do you want us to do it? Well, speak up, Marshal. Which way is it going to be? All right. All right. Now, you've all heard Blaine's story. He claims he and his friends saw Orlo and Gorse at Kelly's stable when the shooting took place. Now, that's pretty good evidence that they didn't kill that clerk. And it could be true. I'm going to go inside and I'm going to talk to him about it. And I'll give you my answer in half an hour. Now, is that fair enough? A half hour will just about do it, Marshal. I think it will, Blaine. But no matter what you decide, we're going to turn them loose. Isn't that right, man? Yes, sir. Chester, keep an eye on Blaine. Don't let him leave here if you have to shoot him to keep him around. Yes, sir, but I don't understand why Just you're... do as I say, Chester. Yes, sir. What's doing, Marshal? I don't know, Gorse, but I just might find out. This Dodge is a mighty strange place, wanting to turn prisoners loose. Yeah. I'll be back soon. You're going to break my window with those rocks. Get on here, Doc. I need you in a hurry. Huh? Oh, why, sure, man. Stand out of the window here, and I'll climb down on top of you. It's only a few feet Okay. Here. All right, come on, hurry. Yeah, well, what's this all about, Matt? 
Where are we going? We're going to the express company first. Well, what for? It's closed. Maybe not. It's not quite six. Everybody in Dodge is out there in the street. I was watching from my front window. Not quite everybody, Doc. Blaine's two friends aren't there. Yeah, right. Well, what do you I'm mean? working on a hunch, Doc. If I'm right, I want you as a witness. And we'll go back and show that mob what fools they are. Yeah, whatever you say, Matt. Uh, but I haven't got a gun. Don't worry. I'll do the shooting. We reached the ex- rear of the express company, and I took a quick look through the window. The single room was deserted. And the only other place would be the bank, if I was right. And I was. Two horses were tied to a tree outside the back entrance, the door of which was ajar. I made Doc get around the corner of the building where he'd be safe. And I stood close to the door and waited. In about five minutes, I heard him coming out. Yeah, we'll hide this stuff at the stable, go down and join Blaine. Hurry, Lou, we're late now. Get your hands up. This is a shotgun. Don't use it. You got us. Don't shoot. Well, you're not the fightingest men I ever saw. All right, I'll take your guns now, and don't try anything. And yours? Doc. Yes? Well, what do you know? Blaine's partners. You sure guessed right, Matt. Now, who's inside? Uh, we didn't hurt him, Marshal. Just tied him up. Who, I said? Well, that old man, the banker. Mm. All right, go take a look at him, Doc. Take those money bags with you. But be quick, we haven't got much time. I'll have company for you shortly, gentlemen, so you just sit quiet, huh? Blaine's going to be mighty surprised at this. Come on, Doc. My gracious, I thought you was never going to come out, Mr. Dillon. Well, Marshal, are you going to be smart? Are you going to turn them loose? You're under arrest, Blaine. What? Marshal, don't be a fool. You aren't arresting anybody. Is he, man? Tell him who I just locked up, Doc. All right. Uh, that's right, man. Marshal just arrested Blaine's two friends. What? You make one move and I'll cut you in half, Blaine. All right, go ahead, Doc. Uh, I was right there with him. Caught him up the street, raiding the bank. They're locked up inside right now. Well, they're, they're no friends of mine. We've been drinking together, that's all. And besides, I wasn't anywhere near that bank. I was right here. Yeah. You men saw me here. And you got nearly everybody else in town here, too, Blaine. So your partners could work unmolested. Take his gun, Chester. Yes, sir. All right. All right, you men. Now, you've made fools enough of yourselves for one evening. Now, you go back where you came from and stay there. Now, go on. Inside, Blaine. Your friends are waiting for you. 
I never did find out just who Blaine was. He kept his mouth shut all through the trial. It could be that he'd never been arrested before. But anyway, he and his partners got five years. That's better than Orlo and Gorse made up. They stood up and told their whole story as straight as if I'd told it myself. I guess telling the truth was about the only sense of right and wrong that the war had left them. They weren't bad men, but they were dangerous. And early one morning, a month later, up in Hayes City, on the order of the court, Orlo and Gorse were hung. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner and Harry Bartell, with Lawrence Dobkin and Lou Krugman. Parley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This Monday evening, Dan Daly and Deborah Padgett are the stars in Deadline USA a dramatic thriller adapted from the movie and presented by your Lux Radio Theater. It's an action-filled story of a newspaper man's struggle against hoodlum elements in his community, one that leads to dangerous reprisals on the part of the mobsters. Remember, this Monday night over most of these same stations, CBS Radio offers Deadline USA on your Lux Radio Theater. George Walsh speaking. America is cooking with 14 million kitchen radios and listens most to the CBS radio network. of April 1953 that was Gunsmoke and the name of that episode was Bum's Rush and that is one of my 10 top favorite uh, episodes I just love that it it really uh, made me laugh out loud especially this line but if I'd known what I was falling I think I'd have just ridden up behind and yelled at you to stop we'd have run Not, not only was Dylan's line funny, if I would have known who I was following, I would have just run up behind you and yelled at you. But then John Daner's reply, oh, we'd have run. <laughs> oh, very funny. <clears throat> but it's really sad, isn't it, that uh, they ended up hanging for their, for their sins. That was Gunsmoke, and we, of course, will have another episode when we get together next time.
Well, I think it's time to liven things up here with a little music. Here's one that uh, you might remember. It came out in late 58, early 59. That one had you up and dancing. You remember dancing to that one back in 1959? Like in the seventh grade for me. I guess I probably wasn't dancing then, but so much. But uh, I do remember that song later on when they used to have the school dances in ninth grade and then on into high school. Sometimes they were sock hops in the gym, of course, and sometimes they were uh, after hours dances. We used to have a dance after every football game, every home game at least, in uh, in Long Beach at my high school. Well, Chester, it, oh, you're turning the lights down. Chester has just turned the lights down. Very, very romantic. Slow dance? Okay. Chester says this one is a slow dance, and it's ladies' choice. Our guardian star lost all his glow the day that I lost you. He lost all his glitter the day you said no And his silver turned to blue Like him I am doubtful That your love 
true But if you decide to call on me Ask for Mr. Blue I'm Mr. Blue When you say you love me Then prove it by going out on the side Proving your love isn't true Call me Mr. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, though. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Mm-hmm.